to episode number seven in our class action fireside series. I'm joined today by two of my disputes partners, um, Ruth based in Melbourne and Christine based in Sydney. Um, we're also very fortunate today to have Fiona Smedley joining us. Fiona is a partner in our corporate group based in Sydney, specialising among other things in licensing and managed investment schemes. Welcome everyone. So in our brief, um, previous sessions, we've briefly touched on the new litigation um, funding regulations passed by the federal government, which came into effect on 22 August. And there's been a lot of um, public debate about the effect and impact of the new regulations um, and how those regulations will impact the broader class action landscape in Australia. So, so what do the actual, what do the regulations do? So around 10 years ago, the full federal court held that a class action funding arrangement constituted an unregistered managed investment scheme for the purposes of the Corporations Act. The federal government responded to that by largely exempting litigation funders in class actions from having to comply with managed investment scheme regulations and obligations under the Corporations Act. Fast forward 10 years to where we are now and the federal government has removed these exemptions for litigation funding arrangements in class actions. They remain for other types of litigation. Litigation funders will also now have to hold an AFSL. So Fiona, this is a pretty significant change in the landscape for litigation funding and class actions. What, what's your initial response to the changes? Um, thanks, Liz. Yeah, you're right. It is a really significant change. Okay. So this is a bit of a twist because we're now switching off a managed investment scheme exemption, which has been around for a long time. So there's going to be quite a transition for the industry to work out how to deal with that. And in, in brief, what is that going to involve? It's going to involve a couple of things. The litigation funder is going to need to apply for an Australian Financial Services Licence, otherwise known as an AFSL. And it's going to need that just to be able to operate this kind of business going forwards. And then assuming that the funder is not going to be limiting the types of people that it will be working with, and it will want to work with classes which have a broad range of members, it's not going to be able to limit that class to wholesale clients. So it's going to need to manage retail regulation. And that means essentially publishing a PDS in relation to each of the litigation funding schemes and also registering a scheme with ASIC. And that's going to be a completely different process for them. Now, of course, that is all just for getting started. Then once the litigation funder is regulated under the Corporations Act, then there are going to be ongoing obligations and compliance issues to deal deal with as well. We can talk a bit about that later. Thanks very much, Fiona. I think what your comments highlight to me is, well, first of all, this is going to be a pretty massive topic to try and cover in 15 to 20 minutes, so we might have to come back um, another time. Um, one way we, we can attack this is by considering the impact of the new regulations on the typical life cycle of a class action. Christine, what are your thoughts about how the new regulations um, are going to impact funders when they're at the stage of just investigating a potential class action? 
It's a great question, Liz. I think it's it's one of the things that have um, received a lot of airtime in the media and by commentators. So one of the uh, criticisms about this new regulation is that it's going to occasion delay, two types of delay. The first is um, as we're transitioning to the new um, funding regulation process, which Fiona has touched upon in terms of getting licenses and getting all those things structurally in place. That's one source of delay. Um, and then the second source of delay is systemic delay in terms of when there's potential class actions that might be brought and funders might be interested in in um, supporting those class actions, just having a longer lead time um, for those to commence. So uh, I guess I'm really interested in your views, Fiona, as to whether those criticisms, they feel like they're um, warranted, but I'd be interested to hear from you on that. Yeah, thanks, Christine. So there is definitely going to be a delay um, these new regulations are going to fundamentally change many aspects of litigation funding and the related class actions. So, you know, we've talked already about one of the threshold requirements being to obtain an AFSL. Um, this initial step is actually going to take some time to complete. There's quite a bit of work involved in preparing the application and all the supporting documentation. And then ASIC, the regulator, will take some time to process it all because this is what we call a, a highly complex application. So this is probably going to take six to nine months in terms of getting a license. So that's a, an automatic lull in the process. And then once you have a license, then when you come to launch a particular litigation funding scheme, you're going to need to register a scheme and you're going to need to prepare a PDS. And I would say generally, you're going to need to allow three or four weeks for both of those pieces of work. Now you could run them in tandem, and you could prepare for that by having some documentation on the shelf ready to roll out. But in either case, there's always going to be a bit of work involved in terms of tailoring those documents and getting ready to launch a new scheme. So that, I think, will just be something that needs to be considered into the timetable going forwards. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because I think, um, I guess my reflection on that is it, it does create a little bit of tension with our Part 4A regime because the class action regime is designed to be plaintiff friendly. There's fairly low barriers to commencement. So I think adding this layer of um, regulation in place is introducing complexity at an early stage. And I think potentially even introducing the prospect of a lot of satellite litigation at an early stage just to test whether um, those regulations are being complied with, you know, is this scheme a, um, a litigation funding scheme within the meaning of, um, uh, of that phrase and uh, I can see some funders potentially even working around trying to, trying to find a workaround uh, the regulations and whether those, um, whether those structures actually do or do not, uh, do not work. Yeah, I, I think you're going to see quite a lot of upfront thinking and planning, Christine, because when you bring a financial product to market, there's quite a lot of investigative and design work up front and a lot of careful thinking to make sure that you launch that financial product in a compliant way. And I expect going forwards, you're going to see that kind of rigor being applied in relation to the commencement of a class action as well. And so I think what's really interesting is that but even though it's been raised as a criticism, I can actually see it as being a, quite a positive thing as well, because in the last, you know, certainly in the last five, five years, we've seen that, um, I suppose, that, that that time between a negative event occurring and the commencement of a class action becoming increasingly short. So for me, um, it does raise questions about, you know, are, are people really thinking critically and, and mindfully before they commence um, a claim? And so perhaps 
putting in these new funding structures actually forces them into that um, thinking process. I, I don't know, Ruth, if you if you agree with those observations. Yeah, I mean, definitely there'll need to be quite a lot of thought up front in, in terms of before you actually commence. I think though one other interesting aspect of it is that the the process of getting it all in order so that you can actually commence um, will there'll be an element of that that becomes public. And so I think one aspect that's become um, a bit of an issue in recent years has been the multiplicity of of actions. Um, and this process will probably put people on notice at an earlier point in time that at least it's been contemplated that a class action would be commenced. And so you may actually, it may actually flush out um, the competing class action issue at an earlier stage, which, which might actually be useful, um, a useful development in terms of bringing that to a head uh, earlier rather than later. Yeah, I mean, multiplicity is just a, a huge headache and a huge topic in and of itself. Um, yeah, so it, yeah, that I think that the possibility of this um, new regime, in, I guess, increasing the incidences of um, multiplicity is is certainly, I think, a problem that maybe a lot of people haven't thought about before. Actually, I think the the commentary in that space has been quite sparse. Um, but I know we've been thinking about how these new regulations might play out, and it might also lead to more. I suppose you know. Uh, funders trying to um, get through some of the exceptions to the managed investment scheme um, uh, rules, Fiona, for example, trying to uh, loop into that wholesale clients exemptions. Um, and so one possibility, another possibility is that in terms of multiplicity, maybe we see a return to the old traditional type of multiplicity problem, which was lots of multiple closed classes that have to be, um, have to be to be managed. So I, I don't know if you know if that's if that's a real option for litigation funders to try to go through a wholesale route if they want to go through a, I guess a regulation like route, so to speak. Mm. That's that's a, an interesting observation, isn't it? Um, in the financial services world, a lot of financial services companies would lean towards the wholesale side of the market because the regulation is so much simpler life is easier and the compliance costs are much less, of course, but is that even going to be practical for a litigation funding type of business model? I, I don't know. Is is this something that means that open classes are going to be less popular? Could this potentially push people towards closed classes? Is there any way practically that you could even limit a class to wholesale clients? Because that's going to exclude an extraordinary number of people. And as I understand it, Traditionally, you've had a lot of members of the public participating, most of whom wouldn't qualify as wholesale. So how do we think this is all going to play out going forwards? And in terms of once you've actually got a class action up and away, Ruth, what is this all going to mean in terms of operating the proceedings once they're on foot? What's going to change in that space? Yeah, look, I think there's a couple of a couple of things that sort of come to mind. The first is really the question around um, whether by recommending that someone participate in a class action, whether that will trigger the financial product advice component or parts of the Corporations Act. So, so you may start off with um, some associated uh, requirements in, in connection with even recommending uh, someone participate in a class action. Um, the, the second one really is around 
the interaction between the class action regime um, for opt-out and the MIS regulations because opt-out is essentially a, a really core component of our regime. We, our regime is such that it starts, particularly if we're talking about an open class action, it, it starts on the basis that everyone is in unless they take an active step to opt out. And because of that, the regime has quite a formalised process whereby the opt-out, the time for opt-out is set. There's a, a process whereby people are notified and then there's a time by which they need to opt out. And so the question is, well, once that, that time for opting out has passed, um, how does the ability to get out of the scheme operate? Because you, you may want to exit the scheme but have lost the opportunity to opt out of the class action. So that interaction between the regime and the regulations will be a really interesting um, uh, aspect of this. And I think the, the final point on, on sort of key issues that arise in terms of the proceedings on foot is really the, the mandatory disclosure piece throughout the proceeding. Um, Fiona, I'd be just interested to know a little bit more about that mandatory disclosure aspect. I think that's a uh, really interesting part of it. Yeah. Um, thanks for those observations, Ruth. I think um, they're really helpful to identify the difficulties and challenges that we have when we take a litigation funding model and drop it into a financial services regulatory space. Um, now, we've talked a little bit about some of the thresholds that um, a litigation funder would need to get over just in order to start a scheme. But of course, that's just the beginning of it. Um, once they're actually operating a scheme, including while the proceedings are on foot, there will be a raft of obligations which will apply under the Corporations Act, which will be new and novel and litigation funders are going to have to work their way around them. Um, there are a couple that I just really wanted to flag just to um, draw out. One that's very important is, for example, a duty to act in the best interest of the scheme members. Now that sounds quite simple and quite straightforward, but it's not really because it means that whenever the litigation funder is making decisions in relation to the proceedings, they're just going to have to slow down a little bit and make sure they're carefully thinking through the decision to make sure they've identified the interests of the members and they're properly taking them into account. And then that becomes even more complicated when you have active and passive members because a responsible entity um, who's operating the scheme has a duty to treat different classes fairly. Now, there are going to be obligations as well in relation to keeping the PDS up to date once that's out there. And there will also be ongoing periodic disclosures, which you alluded to, Ruth. And this is an interesting one because a responsible entity of a scheme that has 100 retail members will be subject to continuous disclosure rules. And that will essentially require it to disclose information that would have a material effect on the price or value of the interest in the litigation funding scheme. Now, litigation funders are very familiar with the continuous disclosure rules, of course. They're used to looking at those rules from the perspective of identifying if they've got a claim to make. But the interesting thing about this new regulation is it's going to flip all of that around and put them in a position where they're going to have to be complying with these rules themselves and providing timely disclosure. And of course, I would have thought in the context of operating um, a litigation funding scheme and being involved in litigation, an obligation to make disclosures, particularly in the context of proceedings on foot, would be incredibly complicated. Liz, what do you think about that? I, 
I completely agree, Fiona, and it's hard to tell at this stage whether the new regulations are going to have the effect of actually increasing protections for group members, which ultimately is what is intended, or simply whether it's going to increase costs for litigation funders, which will flow through to the returns to group members, and then the complexity for group members um, having to try and understand, I suppose, the raft of disclosures that they're now going to get throughout a class action and, and what that means for them. Ruth, one of the areas that hasn't received a lot of focus in some of the public discussion around the new regulations is how they're going to um, interact around settlement. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a really interesting interesting aspect of what is already an interesting issue. Um, but obviously the, the class action regime, because it's built upon this idea that it's resolving multiple claims of people who are not there in the courtroom, um, the court has a very strong and important supervisory power that it needs to exercise and never more so than in the, the settlement approval process. Um, all settlements of a class action must be approved by the court. The court considers whether they're fair and reasonable, both in terms of the, the outcome, the, the sort of the amount of the settlement, so to speak, but also in terms of how, how their monies are to be distributed among group members. And so the court needs to get in and understand the sort of relative strengths or, or weaknesses, if you like, of the group member claims within the cohort, so to speak, um, and be satisfied that it's, it is fair and reasonable. And so one of the sort of interesting aspects of this development is, is how does that work with the regulations, the, the new the MIS regulations? How would, you know, how do, how do you deal with that in the context of a, a, a system or a scheme where there's another set of laws that also apply to how you treat people within that group. Um, and so I think that that interaction between the settlement approval and the regulations is a really interesting one that, that we'll need to see how that unfolds. Um, one of the issues is, you know, do, do you need a, a, someone to come along and, and make the point about the impact on the MIS itself of the settlement? And if so, who would be doing that? Um, the parties to the litigation, you know, they want to get a settlement approved. They've already breached their deal subject to court approval. So the question is, does a regulator come in and, and have a say? Um, I don't know whether that would be a, something a regulator would do, but it, it sort of, I guess, the interaction of this highlights that it's at least a, a possibility. Um, I don't know, Fiona, whether you have a reaction to that? Yeah, good question, Ruth. I would think, I don't know, but I would think that ASIC as a financial services regulator would not really want to get involved in litigation. I think they'd want to stick to their knitting and regulate the Corporations Act aspects of operating a litigation funding scheme. So you never know, um, but I don't think they're really going to relish that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, that... That makes sense. And I guess then that leads you back to the complexity of the court needing to consider all of these issues at that time of the settlement and, and really make sure that they get the information from the parties or at least the, 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 the plaintiff and the funding team require that they provide that information to the court so that the court is armed with all of the information it needs to be able to properly consider the settlement approval application. Um, so, an interesting aspect, Liz, for sure. Yeah, 
Um, Fiona, one last topic before we wrap up. Um, ASIC have already um, granted some day one relief um, around mm -hmm. some of the obligations that will now um, fall on litigation funders. Did you just want to briefly comment on that? And should we expect to see more of these sorts of um, bits of relief granted to litigation funders? Um, I think we'll have to wait and see, Liz. It's, it's going to depend, I think, on how industry actually copes with this once they get into the detail of it. But I would say financial services is a tricky area at the best of times. And there are so many obligations which will not be readily adapted to a litigation funding situation. I can see that there would be um, interest from a number of parties in relation to seeking more relief going forwards. And this yeah. is of course, assuming that the regulations are not disallowed. Yes. We'll have to stay tuned on that one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, thank you, everyone. As I mentioned, this is a pretty big topic to cover in a pretty small amount of time, and we've only skimmed the surface um, on a myriad of issues. Um, Ruth, I know you um, are tracking the disallowance motion that um, Fiona just mentioned. Did you want to just say something briefly about that? Well, I think it's more a case of watch this space. Um, as Fiona mentioned, it, it's it's unclear how this will all unfold, and and it may be that the discussion we've just had becomes moot in a month's time. But you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. Yeah, excellent. The, the space is definitely complex and challenging, and for people who've listened to us uh, so far and followed along, it's definitely not a waste of time because I think it just really highlights um, how changing one aspect of the regulatory framework can change the entire brickwork of the class action regime. Um, that, that's, that's something quite <laughs> Thank you, Fiona, Ruth, Christine, for um, your time today. Um, and thank you to everyone who's taken the time to listen um, to today's episode. And stay tuned for the next um, edition of our fireside chat in about two weeks. Thanks, everyone.